Tonight we're going to read uh, the first time Jesus does an extended kind of teaching episode in the book of Mark. We're reading Mark to discover who Jesus is, to hopefully let, his, let him confront our notions uh, of who he is, maybe find out that uh, we had some caricatures that aren't accurate. But this is the word of the Lord. It might be a story you're familiar with. He began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was behind, beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he told the disciples, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Skipping down to verse 13, he starts to explain the parable. Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, bear fruit, thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and you... Teach us now about what it means to listen to your word. And um, our hearts in all different places, and our hearts deal with your word all different ways, dear God. I pray that you would soften the soil of all of our hearts, that we would be moved by you, that your Holy Spirit would attend to your teaching of your word. We need you, dear God. Be present with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so, I'm kind of starting out with a... This would be the most vulgar kind of language I use in RF. Don't worry. Don't get upset. But it was an image that David Jones brought to my attention uh, at a conference he taught in May. And he talked about this idea or this notion that he called, I think it was idea diarrhea. And uh, just, just hang on with me for a second. Don't get carried away with the imagery. But I like to read, right? We like Twitter, we like Facebook. Uh, You know, in the last 24 hours, I've read 10 to 20 articles on college football, 2 to 4 articles on the government shutdown, 10 to 20 articles on CrossFit, a lot of tweets, you know, followed links off of Facebook to things about parenting, things about Christianity, things about postmodernism. Probably spent more time on BuzzFeed than I want to admit or feel like a 34-year-old man should. Um... You know, uh, working through several different books right now, uh, took in a couple episodes of Duck Dynasty, um, watched some Monday Night Football, uh, 
<laughs> some Chargers fans there. We got some luck people here, so be, let's be careful. Um, tons of information in the last 24 hours. And I can't remember any of it. And, uh, and I know that y'all can relate because school is that to some degree, right? Uh, teachers know, and they don't begrudge you for it, but just so you know, they do know when you say, will this be on the test, the subtext is, I don't care at all about what you're saying. If I reproduce it on the test, I will forget it immediately. Like, they understand what's going on. It's, a trend, it's, it's an agreement you already have. But, you know... That's what you want to do. You want to download all this information, drop it on the test, and then I'm sure we're all the same. I was the same way in school. Months later, you don't even remember, you know, 90% of your coursework. And we do a ton of hearing and take in a ton of information, but we don't do a lot lot of listening. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And it's not just unimportant pieces of data like articles about whether or not Alabama's safety is going to be eligible for the next game against Arkansas or anything like that. We also even have this problem with inspirational ideas. And we even like, we love inspirational ideas. That's what we like to post on Facebook. Inspirational articles that are really moving. Um, TED Talks, right? TED Talks are so inspirational. You know, we love to post them. We love to listen to those 16 minutes. And we get inspired. Has anybody seen the Brene Brown TED Talk? No Brene Brown TED Talk. Thank you. No Brene Brown, oh, you gotta go listen to the... There are like four girls in there. Okay, okay, thank you, Patty. Um, yeah, and it's inspiring, right? Uh, and it makes you feel something, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is incredible, this is an incredible video, these ideas are incredible. But here's my question, did it change you? If you listen to the Brene Brown TED Talk and it really changed you, your life should look drastically different. There should be all kinds of confession. and you, I mean, I love the Brene Brown TED Talk. Y'all should go watch it. It inspires you. It makes you feel something for a season. Did it transform me? No. Right? We even encounter a lot of inspirational ideas that make us feel something for a season. Are we utterly different people because we encountered it? That doesn't really happen. There's a lot of, lot of even inspirational hearing, but not a lot of listening. And that's what Jesus is talking about In this story here, Jesus is dealing with hearing a lot of things, but not listening. And um, in verse 11, he tells us what it is he's talking about. And if you read the Gospels, Jesus has one primary subject matter. The thing Jesus talks about all the time is the kingdom of God. That's his major talking point. And, um, And he's saying, take care with how you listen when I speak about the kingdom of God. Because there's a lot of hearing, but there's not a lot of listening. And listening, he tells us in verse 20, right, are the people who hear it, who accept it, and who bear fruit from it. And before we go into the kind of the soils, I want to talk about, very briefly, about what the kingdom of God is. This is, the kingdom of God is the main thing in Christianity. It is how God describes His total work throughout all of Scripture. And this is how I want you to think of it. I think this is the best summary. It's God's designed for human flourishing and the means by which he accomplishes it. It is his goal and his structure for the world, for our lives, for humanity, and then also the means by which he intends to bring that structure into being. He has a vision for flourishing and he intends, he has tools for getting us there. 
And what we need, all need to see is we all have a vision, individually crafted vision, of what we think our own human flourishing would look like, of our ideal life. You have a sense of what your kingdom should look like. You're pursuing it. And you also have an articulated set of tools that you're using to get there. And God, Jesus is coming along and saying, this is the kingdom of God. I want to hold up this picture of human flourishing next to yours, and I want to hold up my tools for accomplishing this picture next to yours and challenge everything you've seen. God absolutely has a design for reality. It's found, it, it, it's, all of Scripture is really it, but the summary is Exodus 20. Another great summary is Revelation 21. He has a moral, spiritual, social structure for the world that if we conform to that structure, there is flourishing. And flourishing is the biblical word for everything being right. The, the Old Testament of the Hebrew word is shalom, right? And the means by which he intends to bring that kingdom into being is to subdue people with extravagant, unearned love. He wants our hearts. And hearts are not captured by commands, they're captured by love. The love of God and the grace of Jesus, that's his tool for bringing in the kingdom of God. And what I want you to grapple with and what we should always be grappling with is that you also have a design for your kingdom that you're trying to press into reality, a social, professional, relational kind of moral vision of the person you want to be, and you also have tools that you're using to get to that person and to get to that scenario. And most likely what our tool is, is it's disciplined behavior, right? We're at odds. What we have is we have these several different things that we're trying to balance. We want equal parts, the pleasure we can kind of get from being undisciplined, but also the rewards we can get from being disciplined, right? And so your tool is this kind of hybrid life of mixing and matching workaholism and hedonism, hoping that we're going to find the right mixture and then we're finally going to get happy, right? And that just goes to show you that life apart from Jesus actually looks a whole lot like legalism. Managing your responsibilities, following them successfully enough so you can finally get what you want. And that the kingdom of God is actually totally different from that. It's actually, the tool is, you need to experience love freely given and respond in love. And that's his tool. That's the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus challenges us with every time he's speaking. And his question for us tonight is, are you listening to what he's saying? Or is it just going in one ear and out the other? And he gives us three images of different ways that the kingdom of God doesn't take root in our lives. That we can hear it, and it doesn't take root in our lives. And the first one is the hard soil, right? We'll just go through each of the images. Verse 4, He sowed some seed, fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. He explains it. These are the ones along the path the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that's sown in them. This is the the heart that you've heard the word, you're even around it possibly even often, And it's falling on our hearts, but it's never cracking the surface, right? It's just seed sitting on top of a hard surface, on top of the asphalt, on top of a walkway, right? And eventually it blows away, or eventually it's taken away. And it never goes in, it doesn't grow into anything. And this, the hard soil, is both in the lives of irreligious people and religious people. It's in the lives of irreligious people and religious people. For religious people, this is what it may look like. You read your Bible, you come to Christian meetings like this, maybe a small group, maybe church, you enjoy the cleverness of Christianity, you find the intellectual coherence fascinating, you enjoy thinking theologically, 
But you know on some level that you don't want it to really disrupt your life the way Jesus talks about Christianity disrupting our lives. Maybe you can't admit that to yourself. Maybe on some point you do realize, I don't want it to disrupt my life. And here's how you can tell you don't want the kingdom of God to disrupt your life. In these settings, you find yourself thinking about other people. At church, RUF, other Christian groups, you hear a great message and you find yourself thinking about how you hope that other people are there to hear it, right? The seeds are not hitting your heart. You're constantly thinking about everybody else's heart. You're not being challenged by it. You're hoping other people are challenged by it. Either that, So you're either thinking of others. The other thing is we, you operate with the assumption that you kind of have it down now. You've been around this Christianity thing long enough, so there's nothing more for you to learn. Everything's rote. Nothing is new. You hear words like sin, Jesus, love, forgiveness, heart, kingdom of God, resurrection, glory of God, trinity, grace. And there's no challenging exploration of these ideas. You're like, oh, I can, I've got those down. right? These are all words that centuries of theologians have written about and still not fully explored. But you think, you hear those list of words and those concepts of the kingdom of God and you think, well, well I've got that. You think you've mastered them. And that's the seed falling on hard soil. So you think of others, maybe you think there's nothing new to learn, but really at the heart of it, it's, it's that you refuse to let the Word of God challenge you. Does the Word of God jack with your life? Does it come in and mess you up? Are you willing to let it come and mess you up? Have you encountered it and realized that some of the times when you've encountered it, you're like, if this is really true, I have to be a different person. And you can't rest until you start wrestling with that reality. Has the Word of God left you unsettled? I, I have to change. Something's got to be different. I can't think about people. I can't think about myself. Life's got to start looking differently for me if this is true. Is it rattling you? Right? Or do you refuse to let it challenge you? Has it kept you up at night? Has it brought tears to your eyes? Has it confused you? Right? Because it says things like this. The love of God compels you to go seek reconciliation. Have you thought, I cannot sleep until I'm reconciled with brothers and sisters? Or do you just hold that away because you don't want that seed, you don't want those words of the kingdom to jack with your life? It says things like this. Don't neglect gathering together. The Bible is like just crazy full of endorsements of the fact that Christianity is not independent an individual and alone. It is corporate, is made to be worked out within a group of people. It actually even gives structure to that group of people. And the structure is not RUF. The Bible actually talks about submitting to elders and taking sacraments and sitting under preaching, right? But you don't want that to jack with your life. You don't want to be challenged by the fact that God calls you into his family and his family has a structure to it for oversight and care for you because it's inconvenient. And so those seeds about the church, which is God's primary institution in the kingdom, right? They fall on hard soil. The call to love your enemy, right? You cannot be comfortable with hate or indifference or arrogance if the, if the seeds of the kingdom are touching your heart. The call to love your neighbor. Just simple things. This is hard stuff. Simple statements like Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. He's the creator. This is, this is a, a, a summary of Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He sustains all of creation at every moment. 
right now, these are the kind of statements the Bible makes. You can't open your eyes and see anything that is not Jesus's. And all the things you can't see are also his. You can't look at your hands and not see anything that is not Jesus's. You, you can't put on an article of clothing. You can't sit in a chair. You can't breathe any oxygen or any food that is not Jesus's. These are all biblical decorations. And if those things are true, that's really got to jack with our view of reality and really change us to think. You cannot see, feel, think, smell, or taste anything that is not Jesus's. Simple truths like that should rattle us, right? But will that truth, will you forget it in 15 minutes? Will it just flit away when busyness comes, right? Then maybe that truth never really impacted your heart. And maybe even in your mind tonight, you're even thinking, and, and, and if you're like me, you've been there a lot, I should really do something about this. And you're starting to feel good about the fact that you think, I should do something about this. Ah, tonight it's going to be different, right? But you know, like I know, it never actually uh, translates to a life lived differently. In light of the gospel. You're not being gentled by it. You're not moving in love towards your neighbors or growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. Most of all, what Christianity is for you is you're amused by the cleverness of it and you like the music, or you don't like the music, right? This is the person who has head knowledge but no heart knowledge. This is the hard soil where the seed has never really made a dent. But it's not just it, not necessarily just religious people. It can also be irreligious people. Maybe you're here and you don't identify as religious or Christian, and you feel as if you're not positive, but you kind of think most of this is nonsense. Why would I spend my time considering something that I don't believe, Right? If that's where you are, and that's a legitimate place to be, my question for you is, do you know what it is that you're rejecting? Can you responsibly reject Christianity if you haven't ever truly considered it? Have you really considered what the Bible actually says? Not, have you considered popular caricatures of Jesus? That's not who Jesus is. My question for you is, have you considered what the Bible really says? The reason we're doing Mark it's for all of us to be disabused of the prevalence of caricatures of Jesus that are out there and that are also in our minds and our hearts. Right? We've looked at the first three chapters and we haven't been able to go through everything, but this is who Jesus is. If you're a non-Christian, consider, is this who you thought He was? It almost entirely has consisted thus far of Jesus establishing the fact that He's God. Alright, that's a big one. I get that. That's hard. But then showing us what God is like by helping people in deep need physically, emotionally, spiritually, and by religious people getting offended at how radically kind and forgiving Jesus is. Is that who you thought Jesus was? The fr- so far, it's been about Jesus hating evil, restoring life, humanity, dignity, and health, and ultimate relationship with God, and doing it freely by grace alone. Have you considered that? Is that who you thought Jesus was? And I wonder if maybe the reason you reject Jesus is because you imagined Him to be something quite different than the Jesus of the Bible, who is the true Jesus. And in some ways, you can't really responsibly reject Him until you've given the Bible a fair hearing. And even if it's not Jesus that offends you, or that you don't get, maybe it's Christian themselves, right? Maybe it's me, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a group of people, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's the church. You look at the people who call themselves Christians and you look at the church 
and, you, and, and the record is horrendous. And your stories are accurate and true. And what I would ask you to consider is this. It might be the case that if you open up the Bible and considered who Christ was and what He came to offer, that Christianity is actually going to attract mostly broken, inconsistent, characterless people. If you read the Bible, you actually see it's the good people who turn away from Jesus, assuming high thoughts about their own goodness, and it's broken people who come to Him, people aware of their need. That means Jesus leads us to believe that we should expect messier lives attracted to the gospel. If you actually listen to the Bible, if you considered who Jesus was and what the church is, you might actually find out it confirms your suspicions about Christians. It actually agrees with your criticism about Christians in the church. You might find that the Bible is actually not surprised by your complaint because the church is a place that welcomes messes and offers forgiveness. And if you talk to your Christian friends, the reason they came to Jesus is because their, breast, their, their mess brought them. My mess brought me to Jesus. And my mess is now just one more mess that's a part of the church. It's another reason to complain against the church. You've got to consider that maybe the message of forgiveness attracts people who deeply need it. And then you need to ask the question of, if a bunch of people who deeply needed forgiveness got together, what would that be like? You know what it would probably be like? It would probably be an institution with a lot of flaws in it. And a lot of infighting and a lot of frustration. That's probably what it would be like. The Bible will probably confirm your criticism of the church. Because the church is for needy people. And needy people are messy. That's the hard soil. It hasn't touched. It hasn't gone deep. It can be in the lives of a religious person or an irreligious person. But then there's the shallow soil, right? Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil and it immediately sprang up. And since it had no depth of soil, when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. This is a little bit of dirt on top of a bed of rock, right? And so seed actually sinks in a little bit, but only in a shallow manner. And there's even a response to the seed. And verse 16 is very curious. These are the ones that sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. Right? This is the soil that actually experiences joy briefly. And seed with, but it's seed that doesn't go deep. And so with no root system, it's eventually uprooted, especially when difficulties come. This is the shallow soil. And one of the things that Jesus is teaching us right here is be careful to hear what I'm saying right here. A season of really enjoying worship is no sure sign of true spirituality or kingdom transformation. Listen to what I'm saying. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying it's just not an accurate sign, according to Jesus, of genuine, rooted, deep Christianity. It's simply a sign that for a brief moment you're happy, and that is good. It's not bad. It's just not necessarily a sign of truly embracing Christ. This is the person, if the hard soil is lots of head knowledge and no heart knowledge, this is the person with heart knowledge but no head knowledge. Who in spite of the fact that the Bible is an an intensely thoroughgoing theological text, tons of theology here, the person who makes comments disparaging theological thinking, right? I don't do theology, I'm into Jesus. Well, then you've got to articulate which Jesus you're talking about because there's thousands of them. 
Once you start doing that, you're in the business of theology. Right? When you abandon theological rootedness in favor of simply experience, this is what happens to you. Life happens. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. If what you're primarily asking for of religion is a heightened experience and psychological health, you will eventually walk away from the Christian religion. Here's why. We are really, at this point, Tim Keller wrote a new book on suffering. Y'all should go read it. It's blowing my mind. And he makes this point, and I think he's accurate. We're the only culture left trying to deny the reality that suffering is inevitable. It is inevitable. We've become, every relationship will be broken by death. It's unstoppable. Right? We've become so adept actually about lying to ourselves about that, both lying about the suffering currently in our lives, but also holding off the ineffable suffering until the end of life, that we functionally live like we don't think it's going to come. And when it does come, because verse 17 and all over Scripture, God promises it will come, and all human experience from the first day of creation till now shows that suffering is coming and relationships will end in death, This is the one incontrovertible fact everybody agrees on, Christian or not. If all you ever asked from Jesus was heightened positive emotions, and that was the depth of your faith, then because you avoided seeking deeper understanding and wrestling with God, then you're going to walk away when suffering comes. And in fact, you will have missed that the whole testimony of the Bible is primarily about how to walk into the suffering that is inevitable. That's the main issue that the Bible is all about. That's what the kingdom of God is about, is about dealing with suffering. This is John 16, 33. This is Elizabeth reminding me this morning. This is a great life verse. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's Jesus' promise to you. In the world you will have suffering. But take heart, I am overcoming it. What's fascinating is in in some ways, sometimes some of the people who claim to be the biggest advocates of great worship are most often the most out of touch with what God actually has to say about worship. Most of the worship songs that God has written are about suffering. Most of them. The majority of the songs that God has written for His people to sing, which is the book of Psalms, they're actually about suffering. That's His main topic of singing for His people. Because that's our big problem. Our biggest problem is a problem, but it's a small one. Our biggest problem is not, I don't feel something today, or I didn't feel something last week. That's not our big problem. Our biggest problem is the inevitability of broken relationships and broken bodies and death. And if you never grow to see that God's work is profound and it's deep and it's reality-shifting battle with sin and suffering and evil, if you're not willing to go into those complex places with God and wrestle with His Word on these matters, you will walk away. Or, and this is just another form of walking away, your faith will become more and more shallow until it's indistinguishable from pop psychology. So things like the Trinitarian nature of God. Don't ask me to preach on that. It would blow all of our minds and I don't even understand it. Crafting a beautiful reality, us made in His image, rebelling in sin and breaking it, the complexity of brokenness, the righteous requirements of the law, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, the gift of the Holy Spirit, 
the church, Jesus' bride, your family, organized religion, which God started and instituted and oversees, that He gave to that organized religion, things like elders and deacons and sacraments, all for the sake of growing you in your identity in Christ. The resurrection of the dead, the making of all things new again, all to the praise and the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If those words and those doctrines of the kingdom are not breaking into our hearts, here's what your Christian experience will be, or rather your religious experience. You'll listen to some mediocre music for a while, and you'll be amused by listening to cleverly delivered pop psychology that's infused with Christian vocabulary. But your faith will not survive the very thing which God intends for you to survive, which is inevitable crippling suffering. This is the soil. It springs up quickly with joy, but it wanes over time, especially as you more and more discover that life pretty much just keeps getting more and more difficult. Without the words of the kingdom going deep, there is a shallow rootedness, and it will only last for a season. That's the shallow soil, the mixed soil. We'll get through this more quickly. It's another soil. This verse 7, it's the soil that falls among thorns. There are other things planted in the soil. And Jesus tells us in verse 18, the thorns are other loves, their desires, their riches, their other gods or dreams that we hold on to alongside of holding on to the promises of the kingdom. And this soil, it tries to grow, in, it tries to grow several different plants at once and hold on to a lot of gods at once. So you're into Christianity, but you have some margins around some things in your life that you don't want Jesus to mess with. You're into Christianity, but you don't want Jesus to mess with these certain areas of your life. Right? This is, this, it, this is a softball at Stanford, right? Ambition. Every person seeking the kingdom of God at Stanford is afraid that Jesus is going to ask you to lay your ambition down at His feet. And He probably will. I'd love for y'all to join us at the retreat in two weeks. It's cheap. It's a weekend with fellowship. You hear the stories of God's Word and His kingdom for you. There are new friends to be made. You will be a blessing to others there. But a lot of people will avoid that blessing because the God of ambition won't give you a spare moment. Right? It could be ambition. It could be your reputation. It could be pleasures, your dream life, our materialism our social comfort, our bodies. Anything about which you say, Jesus, you have most of me, but you can't tell me how to spend my money. But you can't reorient my life sexually. But you can't tell me who to love. Right? You can't go to these places, Jesus. The way you identify the thorn bushes, the things that you're trying to grow in your heart alongside of the kingdom of God, which will choke it out eventually, the way you identify them is this. You just look at your anxiety. Look at your anger, look at your insecurities. In short, look at your emotional life and look at your calendar. You'll see your thorn bushes. This person will like the trappings of Christianity, involved in aspects of it, RUF, other groups, church. They like what they get from Jesus, but their affection is never returned to Jesus. And Jesus will be the first thing they cut from their schedule when it gets busy. Because you're here grooming your professional life. Right? And that takes priority. But the shaping of your character and the eternal uh, of your character and the eternal state of your soul 
That, that takes time too. But isn't that usually the first thing that goes when the God of ambition and success comes calling? You, you cut out caring for the eternal state of your soul so you can impress McKinsey. I don't know. And the Bible is clear. We can't carry more than one supreme love in our hearts. And eventually that love will choke out the others. And the seeds of God's Word maybe have made some inroads in your life and you like it and you like what it offers you, but you don't want to give your love to Jesus because your heart's still captured by something else. That's the divided heart and it won't last. And I love television and it is very fascinating that three of the best shows ever made, Mad Men, Dexter, Breaking Bad, Walter White, Dexter, and Don Draper all teach us this. We are desperately all want to believe we're going to be the first person that can balance two lives and two loves. And every single one of those shows is about how nobody can do it. That's the fundamental premise of three, ostensibly three of the top ten pieces of art made in the last 50 years. It's about how we all believe we're going to be the first person to balance this life and this life, this love and this love. And they never can. That's the mixed soil. We've got to learn from Don Draper and Walter White. There's the good soil. They hear the words of the kingdom, they accept it, and they bear fruit. What are the marks of the good soil? And this is, I talked to David Jones the other day, and he really, we talked through this, and it was sweet. Good soil doesn't mean good people. And that's usually our first assumption. Good soil doesn't mean moral people. Again, just the first three chapters of Mark have established that because in the first three chapters, we've seen several immoral people accept Jesus and several moral people reject Jesus. So the thing that people have in common who are accepting Jesus is not their moral lives or their religious devotion. What is it that they have in common? The people who have been blessed by Jesus in the words of the kingdom thus far. What's the common trait of the good soil? Read the Gospels and see. Here's just the first couple of chapters of Mark. It's a leper in chapter 1. In chapter 2, it's a tax collector. If you don't know what a tax collector is, they're essentially a low-level crime boss. They're, uh, they've been rejected by their people. They're very immoral. Sinners is a technical term used to refer to the people who are publicly known to have morally despicable lives. The paralytic, a bleeding woman, a man whose daughter had just died. Those are all the main characters in Mark up to this point who received the words of the kingdom. Now, what do they have in common? That's where we begin to discern what the good soil is. This is what they have in common. They're desperate. They're desperate. Socially, morally, religiously, alienated. Immoral, confronted with infirmity, physical sickness, and losing a child. This is a group of desperate people. And those are the people who are responding to Jesus. This is the people who are in touch with the reality of brokenness in the world and in touch with the reality of brokenness in themselves. And they are done with superficial cures like hedonism and materialism and self-absorption and reputation building. And all those things represent different coping mechanisms that we employ to try to stave off our suffering and they have, these people have seen all those things for what they really are. They're cheap, temporary mimicries of what real salvation is. For them, everything else has failed. And when everything else has failed, you're desperate 
and that's the heart of fertile, fertile soil. Because when you're desperate, you, you don't blow off forgiveness and resurrection as trite or irrelevant or as if you've mastered it or your imagination has comprehended it. It is life-transforming good news for the desperate person. Desperation softens hard hearts. When you're desperate, you'll seek to know Him more. Is Jesus, is He really who He is? Is this really true? I have to know more about Him. I have to know are these promises true. I've got to explore this. I need it all. Desperation will press you actually into Scripture and into theological thinking. It will be water for your dry and weary soul. When you're desperate, you'll finally see that all the little loves that you're harboring, you'll finally see that they're small. Truly small. You'll know Stanford won't save you. Sex won't save you. Startups won't save you. Google won't save you. Neither will popularity. When you're desperate, you'll see through all of those loves that you're holding in competition with Jesus, and you'll drop them and cling to Him. Desperate hearts are the hearts that hear and accept and bear fruit. What does it look like? This is a small picture of it. I read Psalm 136 Sunday morning. And I can't get this single seed of the kingdom of God out of my mind. The psalmist said, Your plans are temporary and they're perishing. And your plans will end with your death. You know, everything you're working toward will end with your death. That's been rattling around in my brain for the last three days, and it's terrifying. And it reorients things. Meditate that on that for 90 seconds of every hour for the next three days. See if it doesn't change you. All the plans you make for your own happiness are perishing. God's plans endure forever. His plans for your happiness endure forever. Look at your calendar. This is what Psalm 36 says. Look at your schedule and say, Oh, every single one of those plans is going to perish. Then read Scripture and see, all of these plans are going to endure. Think about that for 90 seconds for the next three days. It'll change you. Right? That little seed, when it gets into a desperate heart, it'll change you. You'll look at the world differently. And you know what seeds do? They start, you know what? When they start working, they start shifting things. They start turning the dirt over. They start pushing things out of the way. Right? As the words of Jesus germinate slowly over time, you'll feel him press on things. You'll feel him uproot things. You'll feel him push things out of the way. The sign of seeds growing is going to be that you feel like your life is getting reshuffled. It's going to be confusing. It's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging at times. One of the things we have to tell our girls, this is not a, this is not a word of the kingdom, this is a word of the wood household, is you are not your soccer <coughs> performance. You are not your soccer performance. You are not your soccer performance. Because they're fast, but they're not terribly coordinated at this age. And every now and then, there's some, there's some whiffs on the soccer field. And they just fall apart. And we have to, again, not a word of the kingdom, just a word of the wood household. We have to sow that seed. You're not your soccer performance. You're not your soccer performance. You're not your soccer performance. Right? You're not your, standard, your Stanford performance. You are not. You're not your Stanford performance. Your performance on these midterms is not your identity. It's just not. It's not. You need to say that to yourself. We're going to take up your whole hour. You need to do that for another 60 seconds, right? But those seeds and those thoughts, that's how fruit comes. 
when they start to germinate in your mind and your heart because you're finally desperate enough to not want to be your Stanford performance. Some, a, a, seed, a, a seed of the kingdom that God does, that Elizabeth uh, has sown in the hearts of our girls is this. Elizabeth just looks in their eyes all the time and says, forgiveness is real. Forgiveness is real. Forgiveness is real. Catherine, forgiveness is real. Britain, forgiveness is real. Mary, Shelby, forgiveness is real. She sows it daily. And it gets stuck in their hearts that they're forgiven by the suffering of Jesus. Uh, Forgiveness is real. That gets stuck in your heart. It'll change you. It'll gentle you. It'll humble you. It'll bring joy in worship. It'll bring delight in prayer. It'll make you kind. It'll make you patient. It'll make you non-judgmental. But the kind of heart that is changed by that seed, the forgiveness of God is real, is a desperate heart. The question is not, are you a good enough soil? The question is, are you willing to actually fall on your knees and say, Lord, I am hard. I am shallow. I love a lot of other things besides you. I'm really just kind of distracting myself from my desperation. Can you save me? Is there forgiveness for me? Can I be yours? Do you love me? I'm starting to realize that even though I'm a Stanford student, at the end of the day, all my plans will pass and they will not save me. I think I'm desperate. You pray that from a heart of genuine desperation, you come to Jesus and these are His words for you. Today you will be with me. Today you will be with me. That's His words for your desperate heart. That's what Jesus said to the thief on the cross that was executed right next to him. If you want to know somebody who's desperate, it's someone who is a real thief who was convicted who's being executed. He's got nothing left. He said, Jesus, I've got nothing left. I want to be with you. And he says, today you'll be with me. Right? And he found life in the kingdom of God. Let's pray.